0: My guest today is Professor Maria Roche, who is an Assistant Professor of Business at Harvard Business School. Her research focuses on the production and diffusion of knowledge, which she examines in various contexts. Welcome, Maria.
1: Hi, thank you for having me here today.
0: Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, your dissertation, your thesis recently won a prize. And so our conversation is around that. in the thesis you say, interaction between individuals is especially crucial for innovation as it enables the exchange and recombination of knowledge necessary to create new or improved existing technologies, processes, or products. Uh, you examine the impact of interpersonal exchange on innovation in three different contexts, neighborhoods, co-working spaces, and university laboratories. Yeah, I find this very interesting, Maria. So, this this uh, has been sort of the the common theme that we we, we hear right. Uh, people put them in a room, they come up with ideas faster. Um, I used to work for a pharmaceutical company a long time ago, and we have you know these large campuses, just like high tech companies in the Silicon Valley, where everybody goes and have all sorts of meetings. Um, I'm a little skeptical, actually, uh, in putting people together. Uh, increases innovation rate and in the context of now COVID, uh, this is a uh, really interesting question, right? So um, before we um, before we get into the details, uh, I guess uh, we can go through the three, uh, you have three different chapters. So you start with the neighborhood. Um, this is really interesting. So th- these are talking about the design of neighborhoods, it has implications for city planning perhaps in the future, So so what do you you find here and what's the data that you're using?
1: Yes. So first of all, I love the skepticism and we'll get more to that and how that's a very good thing, especially in this topic. Um, So, But speaking of my first chapter there, I was looking at street infrastructure. So usually we think about how do we bring people together, et cetera, more in terms of like in the office space, or are there other ways that we can bring and combine people together? And I was like, hey, how about these streets? How about how people can move around in the city? And this was partially motivated for from when I moved to the US from Europe, where I was used to running around everywhere and bumping into people. And then suddenly it was like, oh my gosh, they're only cars. So that motivated me to look into this a little deeper. And I took data on the whole US, um, used data on the street infrastructure on the block group level. So this is probably the smallest unit of analysis you can have for uh, geographic entities. And there I looked at especially the type of streets where both um, sidewalks, uh, bikes and cars can move at the same time. So it's not highways. So I I want to distinguish that um, as well. And it's not trails either, just like, you know, little little pathways where only people can walk. And so so I used that and matched it onto U.S. patent data uh, information which I located on the on this block group level, which is a little tough thing to do because it's hard to get all the addresses together and really get it nailed down to the precise location. Um, so that's what I did. And then I tried to see the relationship between having really dense neighborhoods where people can move around and bump into each other and patents in that area. And so, so I find, yes, sorry, go ahead. <laughs>
0: uh, and so if I understand this correctly, Maria, so you, you looked at... Um, uh, you looked at sort of streets, addresses, how they are laid out. You look at the addresses, and then you look at the patent data and match where that patent actually originated or where the originator actually lived in so, those oh, No, addresses. so
1: that's a very important distinction. I look at where the company is, so the patent assignee, which is usually the company in this case, uh, which is different from where people live. But since there could be some kind of issue with, oh, is this just some kind of headquarter that I'm picking up? I also only focused on those um, those locations where I could determine that the inventors lived within the commuting zone. So that it was so it was kind it was feasible that these individuals lived close and it wasn't just some kind of HQ in the middle of nowhere. And so that's that's how I decided where the location was. Yeah,
0: I mean it's interesting. So yeah. Uh... I don't know a lot about this. So if you look at the patent uh, information, we have Silicon Valley firms who create a lot of patents. Your pharmaceutical companies in the Northeast who create a lot of patents. Um, there is definitely a sort of an industry um, concentration, right, in terms of patents. So, so I would imagine, you know, New York and San Francisco are major patent creating cities. Um, but can we make any conclusions as to sort of the the street design and so on?
1: Well, first, speaking of the clusters, that is true. Um, There's also research showing that a big chunk of all the patents that are produced are produced in Silicon Valley and in New York and in certain metropolitan cities. Um, So that is true. But um, so what I did is I looked within cities as well. So I was controlling for the The commuting zone, which is a way to distinguish metropolitan areas. And so I found this variation within a city. So, thinking about within San Francisco, within Boston, those neighborhoods that were very dense in terms of their street infrastructure and street networks, that's where we saw or where I saw the most patenting activity. Uh, So, that's really important to keep in mind because, of course, the US. It's very very different in the country, depending on where you are. You'll see very different activity in general.
0: Mm-hmm. I know that you did some sort of historical analysis of this, right? If you rewind time back, uh, it's actually a more um, maybe less noisy uh, information, right? So so what do you what do we find when we go back in time?
1: So what I did to go back in time was more uh, for the empirics. Is I looked at. The housing age um, of the the buildings that are in neighborhoods because those those buildings or those neighborhoods that were built before the introduction of the car tended to have much more grid-like structures. And this had a lot to do with uh, what the main mode of transportation was back then in cities especially, which was the streetcar. And to get access to the streetcar, the the streets were built so that it was really easy to like just walk by other streets and to get to where the station was or where the main line was then came the car then came suburbs then came cul de socks. <laughs> and that kind of destroyed a lot of the typical grid-like structure we used to have um, and so that's what i use to kind of um, uh, predict what type of network or street network you find in a certain neighborhood um, and that's how i went back in time i didn't really go Back in time because it's incredibly difficult to find patent data with locations that go back, um, you know, past the 50s. So it's really, really tough. But there are some incredible scientists that are working on that, and kudos to them. So that's that's just incredible legwork. But yeah,
0: yeah, it's always a question of correlation uh, versus causation, right? So um, people who are, you know, uh, younger and let's say more innovative, perhaps they prefer locations that are a little bit more dense. Um, You know, they they go out with their friends after work and so on. Uh, Can we tease out whether it's just sort of correlation or there's some causative effects there?
1: So I tried my best to make it more a causal story than a correlational one. Of course, there are always issues that I cannot control for completely. So I have to be very, um, you know, careful with with saying, oh, this is totally causal, Uh, I do suspect that there is a selection going on, bias going on, in terms of what kind of firms actually locate in these areas. Because if you think about it, big firms that are usually the big producers of patents, have these big R&D labs, it's really hard for them to locate in these small, dense, or more urban-like neighborhoods. So if anything, my bias is probably going in the other direction because these other bigger places, um, there's a, a type of negative selection almost into, into dense neighborhoods going
0: right. on. Yeah. yeah, so so based on what you have found in the data, um, what would you suggest sort of the modern city design? I, I think this is a lot of people are now thinking about this, right, with COVID. Um, uh, at the early part of covid cycle there were a lot of movement away from the cities uh, real estate prices came down people wanted to go out to the suburbs and buy buy houses with a lot of space uh, the the trend appears to be reversing now uh, so the movement back into the cities so so, so what what do you think will happen uh, let me ask you two questions um are there implications for city design in general and in the sort of the COVID, exposed COVID shock, uh, what do you think is going to happen?
1: Okay, so uh, again, this is gonna be more speculative than because we don't know what's gonna happen. Um, So my one biggest suggestion is do not divide neighborhoods. Um, And I'm saying this because we saw this in New York uh, when the um, highways were introduced, a lot of old neighborhoods were divided by a highway. And this created extreme segregation between people that lived in these cities. And they're almost different cultures now. They're almost completely different environments. And if we really want to be able to get people from different communities to speak to each other, and I'm also thinking from a diversity standpoint, we have to be able to make connections. And connections can be very literally bridges, like actual bridges making sure that people can actually meet each other, run into each other, and that it's not so tough to, to see other humans and other and interact. And again, kind of lazy, so we're probably not gonna walk very far. So making sure that these spaces, that there's many of these spaces where people can actually just sit down, interact. One of my findings was suggesting that bars are important too. Um, and so these kind of things that from city planning that you have these in place, are extremely important and will be um, going forward. And speaking to your point of like the reversion of first going out, now coming back in. So I do think, first of all, we're social, social beings. So we do like to hang out with each other. That's the one thing. The other thing is um, it depends again, what type of work you do. Um, and also, as a firm, what type of work you're engaged in or what your business is, um, then you'll need to be more together than apart. Um, So, let me explain what I mean with that. So, say you're in a creative industry, and it's important for you to come up with new, different ideas. Then you really want to encourage people to come together that are from different areas. So, you want to bridge these things. And the easiest way to do that is put them in a room, <laughs> they can't run away. They have to talk to each other. So that way they will kind of, you know, engage with each other. And that way it's much easier to transfer complex ideas. Now, if you're more concentrated on execution and you need it's like quiet time where you don't want to be interrupted, think of these open office spaces where there's always someone running by who wants to talk to you, or you know, Joe wants to grab a coffee all the time and you can't don't have that space to concentrate. Um, then again, maybe it's better if you are more separated. And maybe it's okay to work remotely in that case. But I do think it, it really depends on what you do and what your goals are.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I just want to touch on the highway point. So um, we, we, we have done this to cities, and some of the cities now are in the process of removing highways. Uh, I, I believe Hartford in Connecticut, for example, uh, is doing that. Uh, ironically, I think developing countries are creating highways and dividing cities. Um, so they, they have a lot of information now. They can just look to developed countries and what that has done um, in the cities. So this is sort of a global global problem, right? Um, if, if there is you know, sufficiently robust data from a policy perspective, this could, uh, this could be useful for a lot of countries, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Um, so I do think one reason why um, more developed countries may revert to building highways overground is because it is a lot cheaper, right? Than building tunnels underground. And these these intra- infrastructure um, projects are really, really expensive and cost intensive. So that could be one reason why it's a little more difficult to do that even though they have the information. But again, I'm not completely sure that they have that information either. So that's an, an, another issue. Um, so I hope a lot more people do research on this area. I, I've spoken to some some of my colleagues, I call them colleagues, we work in the same space, and they have interesting work looking at bridges. So there is, there, it's a, a newer field looking at infrastructure, like really physically, physical infrastructure, but I think it will have a big impact, and um, in, especially in developing countries, as you said.
0: Yeah, and what do you think about public transportation? So, you know, with the with the environmental issues that we have, there is a more of a push toward more and more public transportation. Uh, my sense is that I take Amtrak quite a bit between Boston and New York. Uh, my sense is that our trains, for example, are not really designed. I, I sit in the cafe car, typically, uh, so that I can talk to somebody. Uh, but most of these uh, trains are designed in such a way that it is sort of uh, minimizing any sort of contact uh, between people, right? So there are some implications for design uh, of public transportation vehicles, perhaps.
1: Yeah, so there is a big difference again between the US and Europe. Uh, so just speaking from my own experience, I grew up in Germany. and. The the carts there, especially in Munich, um, the subway system. That's the one I know best. You have people facing each other um, in these in these. So maybe they were designed for that. I have no idea how what they were designed for, but there are differences. So that would be an interesting experiment, maybe um, throwing in different, randomizing what kind of subway cart you have and seeing what kind of conversations come out of it. But I can't imagine that being um, having an impact. Um, Again, I do think public transportation can have really important implications, although it is a huge investment, right? So it costs a lot to maintain um, these public transportation systems. They usually make losses. Um, But then again, this is a public service, so. That's something to keep in mind. Uh, My colleague actually has some really interesting research looking at commute time and how that negatively impacts innovation. But the way they restricted it was they were only looking at those that drive in a car, right? And if you're in a car, carpooling, maybe, but rarely people actually carpool to work. And so they're usually by themselves in the car. And so they don't have the space to interact. And I was talking to him uh, the other day, I'm like, we should do this and restrict it to only those that take the train or commute with someone else and see how that impacts innovation. And my hunch is that it will will have a positive um, impact.
0: Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting as we look forward to level five autonomous cars when they happen, um, you can have different, you know, sort of car designs, right? So you don't necessarily need somebody driving it. Um, you are spending quite a bit of time uh, in the modern context in in transport in trans, transportation in general. So that time is sort of wasted um, in many ways, right? So if you can have a conversation, if you can have just sort of random conversations perhaps uh, that might have some impact on innovation.
1: Yeah, no, we'll see how that goes. Um, Maybe they'll make it open to have multiple people that you're randomly assigned to. I love having random assignments, experiments, right? Make it really nice to tell a causal story, Um, but maybe they can do something like that. Then again, what's the difference between a train and having that kind of car? Um,
0: (laughs) Similar, yeah. When you look at innovation though, did you make any sort of distinction uh, between levels of innovation? What I mean is, um, suppose I just, you know, at a very arbitrary high level, say there is incremental innovation and breakthrough innovation. Let's say, uh, did you do you have any speculation as to whether it's an incremental innovation that gets enhanced um, by by these effects, or is it really breakthrough innovation?
1: So, I, in my research in that paper that we were talking about, I didn't differentiate between the type of research. Again, it was a super micro level. It's hard enough to find any patents. So just having like, that was um, a good enough start. Let's put it that way. I do suspect though that it will lead, if anything, to bigger breakthrough innovation. Um, And this has to do with the recombination of very distant knowledge pieces. And if anything, a city, a micro- place, even an office space, should be more conducive or mo- more, most helpful to bring those pieces together or those people together that otherwise wouldn't have been brought together. So based on that kind of thinking and idea, I would suspect it would help more in making very novel things happen.
0: Um, so. So the other area that you you think about in the second chapter is the interplay between physical proximity and other proximity dimensions in predicting technology adoption decisions, um, and in looking at one of the you say one of the largest technology co-working spaces uh, in the United States. Again, in the context of COVID, this is a really really interesting question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and so so what are you finding here? So the again you know the the common sense I think is. Um, people working together closely is a really good thing. Um, I know that large uh, high-tech firms in Silicon Valley have allowed employees to stay at home for longer periods of time. Uh, Now, uh, I think, so before you get into the details of this one, do you think we are going through some sort of a cultural change that may have an impact on these observations in the future?
1: So again, I think it depends on what you do, but um, not to be repetitive, there's actually a new piece that came out. I think it was in Nature Behavior um, just a couple of days ago that was looking at Microsoft and was looking at how remote work had impacted Microsoft's productivity and um, creativity, so to speak. And they found that being remote had a big negative impact. But at the same time, they created a survey where they were asking um, their employees how they felt about it. If they felt that they were disconnected, things along those lines. And it was actually very positive. They felt more connected than ever. They felt like they were more productive than ever. um, But it didn't show, right? So what they were finding was different from what the perception was of the employees. And so I think it's going to be a very it may actually lead into a bit of a fight of convincing employees that indeed coming back may be, especially if you're working in this creative space, may be very important. Um, And what they found there, which is another very important thing, um, I think, and I find that in my paper too, is that it was especially, um, it hit those hardest that were across different business units. So people and teams that usually interact with each other that kind of productivity, creativity—you know—you can keep it up. But bringing people from very different areas together—that's what suffered the most.
0: Yeah. So, so it, it depends very much on what you do, as you say, and even how the company is organized, um, their product line. So, there's so many different factors. So, so going to these co-working spaces. Uh, so, I, I guess the experiment here is about sort of a startup uh, ecosystem, right? Yes. Yes. So so what do you find
1: here? So here the again the nice feature was that these startups were randomly assigned to their rooms. So it meant that I didn't or we didn't have to, because this is co-authored work, um, we didn't have to deal with oh, they chose to locate beside someone, which is great to start off with. And here what we find is that um you startups learn from their neighbors but only if these neighbors are very, very close. And when I say very, very close, I mean 20 meters. And if you are further down the hall than that, you could, you may as well be in a different floor. And this is crazy if you think about it, because we're thinking about all of these, uh, the research working on clusters and cities, and then we're moving into a co-working place, one floor, and we find it's only really between basically your neighbor um, that you're learning. That's that's pretty um, that's very, very micro. So if we think about that. And when I talk about learn from their neighbors, the way we measured that was we were looking at technology adoption. And so we used a website called Builtwith um, that shows you the tech stack of, of websites. And we have the exact timestamps so we could see when a startup adopted a technology that the other startup had already been using. So this is a great way. It's a different way of measuring, it's not patents. But um, it was a, it's, a, it's a unique and newer way of measuring um, learning from, from, from others. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. So they have to be really close together, you say, uh, for it to work uh, from a physical yeah. proximity perspective. It, it uh, brings back some memories, Maria. I was at Hewlett Packard Company in the, in the 90s. And HP, I would say was very innovative in terms of uh, how it thought about organization and innovation. So we used to have one factory floor with no cubes. Um, everybody sort of sat together in a very, very large factory floor. And we could just you know, stick our neck up uh, and shout across the, <laughs> across the entire uh place uh you know to go get somebody um and then i think you know we moved into this very office-based cube-based closed areas uh, of workplaces which seems to have a negative effect on on technology adoption productivity i think right
1: yeah i mean um i don't know the exact setup of your space so it's hard to say. Um, I can apply to these startups. So they, they're they side by side and they have um, glass windows so they can actually see who's in. So that may also, but they have their private space to execute. They're they're all individual startups. So that may also be important because if you think about the open space design, although it has benefits, you can throw stuff, you can throw balls and it will hit someone in the head. No, I'm just joking here. But um, if you do, you'll get... Interrupted more. So if you you still have to do your work and execute, so that that's why open, super open, may also be a little tough um, in that sense because you don't have the time to actually execute. Stuff.
0: Yeah, it also has some uh, some issues with intellectual property, I would think. If 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 the startups are in a in a close in a in a in a space that are adjacent, yeah. then um, you know you have to start thinking about how to protect your ideas, perhaps.
1: Yeah. That's true. Um, but I think in these in this co-working space, it's more that they're trying to support each other and help each other. I mean, that's why you would go into a co-working space, I would assume. Um, and we also have information on these common spaces and uh, startups going to social events together. And we find that if you're close to each other, each other you're also more likely to go to these social events so we think it has a lot to do with also the socializing and just talking to each other and just being around others that are working on problems that may be very different from yours but you're getting inspired and learning about things that you probably never had thought of um and then also these common spaces these kitchens these are extremely important because they're really they they have the capability of extending the reach of this this super super close proximity effect we're finding, Um, which if you think about like virtual spaces or even if you can't seat everyone next to each other, there's still a way to get people to engage with each other. Say if you put a coffee machine there or the famous water cooler effect, you have people run into each other or what they did at Apple, where the bathrooms are all in the back, so everyone has to pass through all or pass by all the offices to actually go to the bathroom. Those are things that you can really, as a as a as a company, firm, or a designer, kind of think of when you're creating these spaces. And there's this really nice quote I found when I was looking in architecture books to, to learn about this stuff. It was like they said, "The space is the body language of the organization." Um, it, space design has its own grammar that can be tweaked to bolster desirable habits. And so I think if you really embrace that, um, there's so much we can learn and so much we can do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this is about technology adoption. So um, it's a little puzzling to me in the sense that uh, there is information everywhere now. And so, mm-hmm. so I'm imagining now, you know, there are two companies co-located Company X's CTO has found a new technology, and and what we, what you're finding here is that if company-wise uh, uh, folks are very close to Company X, uh, it's a high probability that they're going to adopt the same technology over time. Um, but I find it a little bit puzzling in the sense that in an information age today, um, you know, would it you can just google it couldn't
1: you <laughs> i know and that's why this is like such a cool topic because getting information especially on in like technology stack is basically okay this is not it's not really costless but we can think about it as being pretty much costless right but again there's so much supply how do we go through all of these things that could do basically the same thing so we need to figure out how they work with other technologies And how do we implement it? How do we integrate it into what we already have in our existing tech stack? And I think there, if you speak to others that have used it, you're reducing the time you need to actually implement something or integrate it. And you get very quick feedback in terms of what are things that work, especially as as a startup. Things have to go fast. You have to experiment. You have to make this thing work. Right, And so you're not going to try around for half a year, figuring out which of these different technologies do the best job. You want to talk to your peers. What are you guys using? Okay, this seems to work. This seems to go pretty well. And you're not having problems down the road with integrating other technologies. So that's where it's really, really helpful to speak to others to get that really quick feedback. Um, And it's like Zoom versus in-person, that's another thing. Even these tiny lags of a couple of seconds, make a big difference in terms of how you're perceiving, how other people are talking, how they think about things, are they happy about it, or are they skeptical, as you were saying earlier. So I think that is where we really get the benefit from being close.
0: Hmm. There's a bit of a downside also there, Maria, I wonder. So if, if Company X adopted technology one, uh, there's sort of a co-location bias. So it's it's a bit like a virus. You now, technology one is going to spread across the, the co-location spaces because of this effect. But we don't know if technology one was the right or the best technology, right? So whoever adopted it first is going to spread it around, so to speak. Uh, isn't that uh, potentially a downside?
1: True, it could be um, that we're just spreading something that's really bad. And now everyone's doing it and now everyone's going to fail because they adopted the wrong thing. But as I was saying, it's a fast-moving environment, right? So if it were wrong, and startups are experimenting along at the beginning, if it's the wrong thing, they're pretty quick to, like, disadopt and then adopt something new. That's the one thing. Um, The other thing we did is we also looked at what the relationship was between adopting and performance outcomes. And we do see that adopting from your peers impacts, um, like, your performance outcomes. These are rates... For, for lack of better outcomes um, that we were able to find for these really small, young startups. Uh, we looked at their ability to raise funds, a seed a funding round, and over a million dollars. Um, and we see that this did um, help them.
0: Yeah. Uh, I know that you mentioned you had the timestamps of adoption. So what is sort of the, I mean, it's tough to say on average, but what is the lag that you see uh, you know, from company to company?
1: I honestly cannot tell you what the exact time difference is. Um, we didn't differentiate between was this like right away or like a couple of weeks or days later. That would be super cool to look at because then you could probably get at more, oh, this was something that happened more close in time or they were really thinking about this long before they decided to adopt it. That could be a really interesting angle.
0: Yeah, I was just wondering, you know, maybe you wait till you see some success. And when you see yeah. some success, you just jump in because you have all the initial conditions worked out, right? So the cost yeah. of adoption perhaps for the second company is lower because the first company has taken sort of the experimentation cost and
1: perhaps. the risk. And the risk, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. So the, the third area that you explore here is the impact of exposure to an entrepreneurial lab head on the innovative output of the PhD students, these labs lab heads train? Um, that is really interesting. I, so, um, so there are professors who have sort of their own companies on the side, so to speak, um, and they're entrepreneurial, they're experimenting outside the university. And what you're finding is that the, that professor's PhD students tend to prefer sort of commercial careers as opposed to academic careers? Is that is that what you're finding?
1: Yeah, so what I'm finding, I think the biggest impact I'm finding is actually on the publication output of students. Um, so I see this big drop in terms of their publication total number and also their highly cited publications and I do some more analysis looking at different types Uh, it's all pretty consistent across very many different specifications Um, and I'm finding that the students are also less likely to take on a faculty position whereas um, and these are newer findings because I'm still currently working on this paper in a in a revision Um, I'm finding that they're more likely to go into consulting actually Um, which is Interesting. Um, And I don't want to like, you know, say consulting is good or bad or anything, but it's interesting to see that these highly trained uh, scientists, PhDs, um, who are like at the leading edge of research and development are entering consulting and no longer are able to get faculty positions, which is usually the reason they get into the PhD program. If you look at surveys and also there's some research looking at why do individuals start their PhDs, it's usually motivated to become a PI yourself, right? Um, so yeah, that's, that's the big finding. in that paper. And yeah, as you were saying, the PIs are still faculty. They're usually the best professors. Those are the ones who enter into entrepreneurship. And they still remain at the university while they have their, their side gig, so to speak.
0: Yeah, I, I know if this um, regime has changed now, but it, there used to be you know, consulting companies, hedge funds, private equity firms. Maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, when hunting for PhDs, um, for a variety of reasons, uh, some of it is mostly uh, cosmetic, I would argue. But uh, and so there was a lot of opportunities uh, in the in the commercial space, in, in different industries and and different arenas. Do you think that um, that sort of um, led to this phenomenon as well?
1: I'm not sure. Um, Especially in this, the the fields I'm looking at are a lot of engineers. So going into industry or the private sector is definitely a career path that they want to pursue or it's like, it's not a bad thing, right? It's great, especially if you think about the oversupply of PhDs that want to go into academia. So uh, thinking of that. um, But the thing is, They're not going into research and development labs, um, which is where you would think they would be, for us, from a policy perspective, probably put best to use. Um, And I also interviewed students. And this is what really shocked me. They were telling me, well, you go into consulting if you can't get a faculty job or that's not an option. And when I heard that, I'm like, Whoa, okay. <laughs> so what is this? What's going on here? Again, I only interviewed a handful of students or two handfuls, so let's put it that way. Um, so there there may be some bias in terms of who I picked to talk to, but that already gives you a bit of a sense of, of that this may not be the optimal thing that they're looking for.
0: Yeah, it's really difficult to control the initial conditions to some extent. There's, there's a, I think you mentioned this in the paper, there's a selection bias issue. Maybe the entrepreneurial professor is looking for entrepreneurial students for whatever reasons. Um, and so the, the question would be, is it, is it that the students are observing the professor how he or she is uh, sort of doing their research, what they're focused on, and ultimately make the conclusion that they're going to be more interested outside academics or not, or are they coming in with that bias already, is the question.
1: So that's tough to say because I can't really measure these unobservable. So like thinking of what is the attitude of the student towards commercial versus academic research, I do see that actually those students that have a pre-publication record, so those that should be super, like, they've, they've proven that they can do it, the academic research, right, that they're the more likely or it does predict matching with an entrepreneurial advisor, and it's also those students, um, so the public pre-publication record of or pre, pre-founding publication record, there you go, of the advisors also predicts that students match with these advisors. But this is before they start their company, right? And so as I was telling you before, these advisors that become founders are usually the better professors. And students go for those advisors that have a track record usually, have funding. Funding is a big, big, big important thing um, because only if you have funding, can can a student join the lab, right? And usually the projects these students do are linked to the grants that they get, the professors. Um. So there's a lot at play here. As far as I can see on observable, so GRE scores, GPA scores, pre-publication records, or nationalities, all these things, there doesn't seem to be a change in terms of the type of students that are entering the lab. But again, I don't know if there's something about the commercial attitudes or things like that that are changing. I, I just can't see that.
0: Yeah, I was also wondering, Maria, that, um, so you, you looked at engineering students, Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, get out of undergraduate school, you, you can get a, you know, sort of a quick and dirty master's, <laughs> let's call it, in a, in a year, year or year and a half. And then you go to industry. Um, but increasingly, we, we, may, we may need more education, right? So if you look at the medical profession, for example, you go four years of MD, you've got four years of residency, two years of fellowship. So you're, you're spending sort of 10 years in there. Uh, in that profession, whereas engineers, you know, year and a half, they head out to the industry. Perhaps, uh, maybe there's a trend toward PhD being sort of uh, an entry ticket requirement for industry in the future. Do you you see that happening?
1: So I can't say if I see that happening. I do suspect it's happening. Um, Also, if we think of signaling theory, uh, especially because back in the day, like... (laughs) Decades ago, almost, um, high school degree, having some sort of um, college degree was kind of already enough. If I think back to my parents, um, they were in Germany. Very few people even had um, the, the exam from high school that let you go into university. So if you had any degree, no matter what grade, as long as you passed, you were good. You got any job you wanted, right? But now you can see it's getting tougher and tougher and to get into these undergrad programs and getting a graduate degree. And then really, it's also to innovate. I think you need to be much more specialized to push the frontier forward. And there's some research also suggesting that it is becoming tougher to innovate because of the frontier. So we're getting narrower and more specialized. And to do that, it kind of entails that you need to have a more specialized degree, which means a more advanced degree. Um, The issue is then if everyone is really highly qualified and what if there are no jobs for those super high qualified people, then we may have a problem, Um, but yeah.
0: Yeah, so I mean with artificial intelligence, uh, we are all worried about jobs going away or jobs going to higher and higher end, so to speak, right? And so, you know, in the future perhaps if you don't have a PhD, I don't know this, I don't have one, uh, if you don't have a PhD, it becomes really difficult uh, in the job market um, in the sense that many of the automatable tasks and automatable jobs, and I, I argue, I used to be an engineer, I argue that many of the engineering stuff is, is highly automatable. Uh, they are driven by you know rules and heuristics. We can create expert systems to make engineering designs, so it doesn't require that many people in the future. And so, as you say, um, what you need to bring to the table perhaps is that deep, very deep and specialized knowledge. The downside obviously is that you, you, um, you dive deep and then you find that, well, that is not that useful. <laughs> and then you don't have any options, right?
1: Yeah, it's tough, especially when you speak to PhDs who spent years of their life doing research and then are like, What for? This is so deep. Who's ever going to need this? But this is a whole different conversation. And what I want to say is what's really important are compliments. So, um, especially as we automate, Um, so some things we can automate, which I mean, personally, I'm happy I have machine learning and I have. Python code to crawl my websites when I need it, and I don't have to go manually. But that frees up time for me to do the things I'm good at, um, and so I can do more of that. And um, it's not about it substituting away. I think how we have to think is more about how can we complement. What kind of jobs? Where where are we as humans? Where do we have the competitive advantage? Where do we still? We, where do we not still? Where do we really need human? Um, um, you know, comprehension, being able to judge things, because we also know that AI has a lot of biases, right? Because it's training on existing things. And especially if we want to promote more diversity, um, that's not really going to, that may not do the trick, right? So we still need humans to to be there to fix things. and um, But maybe our jobs will shift a little bit. I don't know if it's only going to be super specialized, highly... You know, only PhDs will have a chance. I don't think so. I don't hope so. Um, I just think that what we do is going to change in how we do it, but not necessarily everyone needs a PhD. Um,
0: Yeah. So, in conclusion, Marias, um, let me ask you an overarching question. So, we talked about neighborhoods. We talked about designs of neighborhoods, transportation systems, and so on. Um, we talked about uh, technology adoption because of proximity, whether it's physical or social proximity, and then we talked about uh, education, um, how advanced degree holders uh, get, let's call it, biased by their entrepreneurial professors <laughs> to head out to the industry. So we put all these three things together from a policy perspective. What are the things that you would say that we should, you know, really think about? Um, whether it's education, whether, it is funding, uh, whether it's funding, whether city design, you know, startups, what are the what are the policy implications uh, from your from your thesis?
1: So I think what's really important across the board um, is that we bring different people together and enable different mechanisms. It doesn't have to be the same way. Not everyone can live in a dense urban neighborhood. Not everyone can work in a co-working space, right? beside someone who's different and has the solution for some kind of technological problem. Um, you you can pick your advisor, but you may not be able to kind of decide when this individual starts a company and then what do you do? Um, but there are ways that you can still kind of compensate for a if something goes not the way you were expecting it, didn't go well, and you you need to like figure out ways how to to protect students in that case, um, give them options to maybe switch advisors or have those advisors once they start companies hold off on being mentors, because that's what I was seeing more is that they don't have as much time to mentor their students anymore. That was more the mechanism that um, I'm seeing. In terms of being in co-working places, there, what really seems to matter is that people are different from you, that they are in a different social space, knowledge space, and product market. Particip- So those are things that we can actively, you know, decide as companies, Um, small startups, it's incredibly important for them to just know this, right? And from a city perspective, so I'm going up um, from micro to more the macro level, I think what's really important is that we try to connect um, the places we live. Because this also has implications for politics, this has implications for social welfare, all of these things, if we're very segregated, um, we live in our bubbles, right? And maybe it's good for some people, but if we're thinking of this from a policy and more general public welfare perspective, I think if we can spread the goods, right, and have people benefit, the more more people who can benefit, it's it's likely going to help us, right? Um, so those are really and they're actionable things right it's not like um alfred marshall from back in i think it was 1890 said there's something about like places that's in the air that it brings knowledge and things together but there we can take these in the air pieces and actually put them into you know on the ground on the streets in like a physical place into who's your mentor who's your advisor so these are, are things that we can actually do something about so yeah
0: yeah, so diversity is uh, is highly valuable. Integration is highly ba- valuable from a from a macro perspective. Um, the one thing I wonder though is that do you anticipate any sort of generational differences as we go forward? Uh, the, the reason I ask is that the last generation expected face to face contact. Um, so in consulting, you know, older consultants cannot really do Zoom meetings. They have to get on an airplane and go sit with their client. That's the only way they say they can work. But I don't <laughs> see that in younger younger consultants. And so, so do you see there's some sort of a generational gap uh, creeping into this process?
1: It may shift to completely the other way that they can't speak face-to-face anymore, which I really hope doesn't, um, but much more seriously, I think um, we'll become more flexible in ways of how we organize our work, it doesn't mean there's going to be one wins over the other. I think that we're going to have also more hybrid um, approaches. But again, as I said earlier, I think hybrid is not always the best for everything. So if you're doing super creative stuff, I hope that we don't get rid of face to face and we can convince people that it is indeed important that we're together. But. That there may be a possibility to do this a couple of days a week, um, so things like that. So there may be a generational gap in sense of the flexibility in in how we organize work. That that I think will probably happen.
0: Yeah, I, I know that you haven't uh, uh, thought about this, but how about the government space? I'm thinking military and things like that. That also requires a lot of innovation. I'm thinking NIH. Uh, NASA places like that um, are there more I know that NASA for instance is pushing research out uh, to private companies uh, more and more um, do, do you see some some effects there um, from for so sake
1: I can speculate again based on the existing literature and here I think it could be dangerous um, and the reason being that if you outsource everything, you're losing your capability of absorbing knowledge. So um, there's this concept of absorptive capacity um, in in the field of innovation research, where it's really that you have to invest in your own capabilities of R&D, of doing research, of understanding this, because otherwise, if you are faced with a really cool idea or technology or solution, if you don't have that existing stock of knowledge, how are you going to, first of all, identify it? And second of all, what we have we've been talking about a lot today, is really integrated. How are you going to make use of something that's really amazing if all you've done is outsourced to, um, to others? And there's this trend also that a lot of um, corporations are buying smaller startups that have a new technology that is great and that has also almost become a weight of, you know, the goal of a startup is to exit via by by acquisition. You know, you're not even trying to make it big. You're trying to be sold. Um, So there could be some implications going forward if that's how corporations innovate they may lose their ability to innovate um, by doing that. Yeah,
0: excellent. Yeah, this has been great Maria. Thanks so much for spending time with me.
1: No, thank you for these cool questions and thank you for being skeptical. It's very important. We should always all try to be so. Thank you.
0: But if you're on, you can can hang up. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.